If you enjoy listening to adventure stories, then you should visit thedihedral.com. You will find stories from other members of the community and read about climbing, life, and the outdoors. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Let's connect and climb on. Climb on! Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Dihedral Podcast. This is Carrot. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about somebody who I think would be an amazing rock climber uh, because of how strong he was, but also an amazing podcaster because of his ability to ask questions. Now, unfortunately, this guy died uh, nearly 2,500 years ago, but that doesn't mean he's not still worth talking about. Uh, of course, uh, the person I, I want to talk about today is Socrates. So we could go on and on for hours, I think, just talking about Socrates, but I thought it'd be kind of fun just to focus on the trial of Socrates written by Plato, uh, a piece called The Apology, which I recommend anybody to read. But today I'm going to take some uh, poetic license and just kind of break it down from my point of view. So it should be a fun talk. I, I hope you'll hang out. Uh, and you want to hit me up. I'm happy to talk about it outside of the podcast with you any anytime you like. So anyway, um, Socrates is from Athens, Greece. His dates are from 470 to 399 BCE. Uh, he was a middle-class stonemason by trade, so there's some rocks involved there, but he never really worked at his craft because he was too busy just doing philosophy. And so there's like all these really fun anecdotes about his his wife, like always just like telling him, Socrates, you got to go work. You got to go, you got to go throw a brick, man. Like we need some money. They had two young sons. And I think with the best of intentions, Socrates would leave the house and go try to find a job. Now, Socrates had this idea that you never really want to give up an idea because ideas are the things that make us us. What makes us people is our ability to think. And so when we give up on the ideas we have, we, we kind of give up on, on that part of being a person. So he would see his ideas through to the end. So anyway, he'd go to try to find a job in the middle of the day. And he'd bump into some people having a conversation. Hey, what are you guys talking about? Oh, Socrates, we're talking about love. And, and so Socrates would be like, yeah. And he'd start asking these amazing questions. If nothing else, Socrates is one of the greatest question askers that, that, that history has ever recognized. So he'd start asking questions and they'd give definitions. And he'd be like, oh, have you thought about this? And they'd come up with better definitions. Uh, and they'd keep working until they finally got a, the definition of a particular term. Now, most of the time, these conversations would end negatively. Either people would get upset or, or and, and storm off, or they would just have to leave, right? It, it takes time to have these conversations, and sometimes people have, have stuff to do. And so anyway, after after having these conversations, sometimes he'd be gone for, for a long time, and he'd eventually return home, and his wife would be very happy. Oh, you were gone for so long. You must have found a job. And Socrates would be like, oh, crap, I knew I forgot something. And he would take off and bump into another group of people who may have been talking about justice. Oh, you guys know what justice is? What's that? And the whole thing would start over again. That was basically his life. So Socrates um, really had two types of friends. He had friends that were very young and friends that were very wealthy. And it's not that he was trying to capitalize on anything. He hung out with these types of people because when you leave your house in the middle of the day, there's really only going to be two types of people out there. Uh, those are people who are not young enough to be working yet and people wealthy enough to not have to work. And so it's not that he necessarily wanted to hang around with these types of people. <laughs> those were just the types of people around. It's kind of like a, a dirtbag looking for climbers. You, you tend to to bump into young climbers and you tend to bump into wealthy climbers because those are the people who have the leisure time uh, to do it. So 
Socrates' main interest as a philosopher was definitions. That's what he was interested in. And, and one of the reasons that he was interested in definitions primarily is because in understanding the meanings of terms, it adds something to our ability to communicate, to our ability to converse when, with one another. And so let me give you a couple of quick examples. Imagine that somebody comes up to you and tells you, hey, I, I love you. And then you're like, oh, really? You do? What does that mean? And they're like, I don't know. Well, that kind of devalues the expression, I love you, if they haven't even thought about what love means. And so if we can talk about what love means, we can now understand exactly what happens when we tell somebody we, we love them. And I think, again, Socrates is probably right on this. It, it adds some meaning to the conversation. But even more terms like uh, the virtues, uh, wisdom, temperance, courage, and justice, Understanding these terms are important because they allow us to be better people. It's really weird to encourage pe to encourage people to act courageously without them ever, ever having any conversation about what courage is. And so if we can talk about courage and understand what courage is, now we can fall back on that definition when we have to act courageously because we know what it is. And the same can be said about wisdom or temperance or, or, or justice or, or, or piety, all the virtues really for that matter. So anyway, that, that's what drove Socrates. The meanings of terms added value to our lives. And so let's try to get clear on the meanings and the definitions of terms. That was it. That, that's what he did. So Socrates, um, he had to develop this, this sense of irony because he would go out to talk to people and oftentimes people would be very confident in their understanding of a term, especially if they were like a politician or a poet or an artist. And Socrates would go up to them around these wealthy people and these young people and be like, oh, you're one of the great poets of our time. You must know what beauty is, for example. And be like, yeah, Socrates, beauty is this. And Socrates would raise this counterexample, showing that that's not really the definition of beauty. And now this person who, who, who's kind of filled with this esteem and pride and thinking that they know what beauty is, is shown to be kind of a false prophet in front of these wealthy people and young people. And they start to get pissed off. They're like, you know what? Screw you, Socrates. Uh, you're making me look, look dumb. And Socrates is like, I'm not making you look dumb. You're kind of doing that to yourself. I, I think looking dumb was a point of pride for Socrates, but for most people, it's not that at all. It's actually quite the opposite. When they're made to look dumb or, or look like they don't know what they're talking about, they sort of fight back. And that's what happened to Socrates. And so anyway, he would do the same thing with a politician. Oh, you're a great politician. You must know what, what uh, justice is. And they give a definition and Socrates would be like, well, that's not exactly right. Have you thought about this? And eventually they would be shown to not know what they're talking about either, which is not good when you're a, a politician. You have no idea what justice is. And even worse, you're not even willing to admit that you don't know what justice is. So Socrates developed this use of irony in order to draw people into the conversation. And, and so people understood Socrates' reputation and they didn't want to really engage in these conversations <laughs> so anyway, let's say a politician is walking towards Socrates and they make eye contact and, and that politician just crosses the street. You know what? I don't want anything to do with this. I'm out. And so as Socrates sees him going away, he develops this, this, this I guess, gift to bring him back into the conversation, maybe yelling across the street. Hey, 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 please don't leave. You're one of the great politicians of our time. If you can't talk to us about justice, if you can't tell us what justice is, what are we to do? And this person feeling very confident, I would say arrogant, would come back and be like, you know what? You're right. I am so great. I'll share my definition with you. And then bam, Socrates would hit him with a left cross right to the jaw and they would be just uh, uh, battered and bruised, really not knowing what they were talking about. So anyway, that, that's just a real quick intro on Socrates. His goal is asking questions to try to get definitions. He was absolutely pissing off some people who claimed to know but didn't really know. I, I think understanding that 
will allow us to step forward into the trial of Socrates that happened much later in his life. Uh, he was 70 at the time of his trial, which was incredibly old for the, the time. But it actually started, um, there's the story of, of, of Socrates started much early, earlier than the trial. So let me just give you a little story that Socrates actually gives during the trial. He talks about his friend, uh, Cherophon, who went to a place called the Delphic Oracle. Now, the Delphic Oracle is this place that you can talk to God. The God of the Delphic Oracle is Apollo. And if you're not familiar with the idea, basically, you would pay money. Really, it's reserved for the wealthy. But you would pay money to a priest, and the priest would then take some questions of yours. And, and the, one of the questions of Cherophon was, is anyone wiser than Socrates. Is anyone wiser than my friend Socrates? And so anyway, you pay some money, you give your, your question to this priest. This priest then goes into some place, a waterfall, a cave, some not a mountain, a, a place of natural beauty. Incidentally, let me just add, if you've ever been to Delphi, uh, you know the climbing there is spectacular. So go check it out if you get a chance to climb in Greece. But anyway, go to check out the Delphic Oracle as a historical point as well. You'd give your money to the priest. The priest would then go into a cave or whatever and talk to someone called the Pythian prophetess, which is a female prophet. And this female prophet had like the mark of God. She was so beautiful um, that that she would kind of draw God's eye. And so she would take the question from the priest, go deeper into the cave, do this like seductive dance. And, and then Apollo would be like, oh, wow, there's a beautiful woman who's doing this great dance and realize it's an interpretive dance. Um, and, and so I'll say, okay. I'm going to uh, give you the answer to your question. You're so beautiful. I, I owe it to you. And so Apollo, in this case, would send the answer back to the Pythian prophetess. She would then go do an interpretive dance for the priest. The priest would come out of the cave and give you your answer. So all that being said, playing a little telephone with God, uh, we get our answer to the question, is anyone wiser than Socrates? And God comes back and says, no, no one is wiser. So Cherophon's pumped. He's like, holy crap, I got to. I got to tell my friend, no one is wiser than Socrates. Where's Socrates? I got to find him. So he goes all the way back to Athens. Has anybody seen Socrates? Where's Socrates? Eventually he finds Socrates. Like, Socrates, Socrates, I got to tell you something. And Socrates is just like, what, man? What is it? Calm down. He's like, I just talked to God. And God told me that uh, no one is wiser than you. Now, I like to try to put myself in Socrates' um, shoes, although he didn't actually wear shoes. But whatever, <laughs> inside Socrates' toga or mind frame or something like that. How would you react if 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 God came down to you and told you that you were the wisest of all people? I you know I just don't think most people would would just be like okay cool and go on with their lives. If you heard that on on like good source, it's probably going to change what you have in mind. If God tells you you're the wisest, and so Socrates is like, what what can this mean? How could I be wise? I don't know anything. Like I admit I, I'm ignorant. I really don't know anything at all. This is crazy. I want to figure out exactly what God means. And so Socrates came up with this plan. And his plan was this. I'm going to just start asking people questions until I find somebody who's absolutely wiser than me. And when I find somebody wiser than me, I'll go back to God and be like, yo, God, you told me I was the wisest, but here's somebody wiser than me. Can you please explain to me what you meant by your riddle when you said I, I was the wisest? Um. So at this point, you might be thinking, look, if God tells me I'm the wisest, why would I question that? Why would I try to find somebody wiser than me? Well, the ancients knew, including Socrates, that God's not just going to give you the answer, right? You're going to have to do some, some work as well to try to figure out exactly what God means. And if you don't, it could be disastrous. So we get the story about uh, the king of Lydia, a guy by the name of Croesus. And Croesus wanted to go to war with Persia. And Persia was a huge empire, um, coming in from the east, and Lydia was not that 
And so you don't go to war without God's permission. Croesus goes to the Delphic Oracle and is like, yo, I would like to go to war with Persia. Would that be great or what? <laughs> and so the whole exchange happens and God comes back through the prophetess and the priest and is just like, look, if you go to war with Persia, you will destroy a mighty kingdom. And so Croesus is just like, hell yeah, I will. And so just raises this army and marches on Persia and they get decimated, absolutely destroyed and totally wiped out. Everybody gets got uh, essentially. And that was the end of Lydia. And so look, God didn't lie. If you go to war with Persia, you will destroy a mighty kingdom. But Croesus didn't do the work. And if he would have done the work, he would have realized that that kingdom in question was his own. And so that was the end of Lydia. Socrates was not going to let that happen to him. And so he took this answer, no one is wiser, very, very seriously. Um, and it it got him into trouble. And so look, I, I, I'm going to tell you kind of my um, interpretation of the apology, adding, I don't know, a little ad lib along the way. But there are some certain passages that I really think are important to just read. Plato wrote them. We have them accessible. And so with that being said, uh, let me turn a little bit now to just a, a bit of the apology when Socrates just starts to come in and begins to talk. So um, Socrates tells this story, the one that I just told you about um, Teraphon and Croesus. And then he goes on to say, uh, why do I mention this? Because I said to myself, what can the God mean? Uh, what, what can he mean when he says that I am the wisest of men? And yet he is a God and cannot lie. That would be against his nature. After long consideration, I thought of a method of trying the question. I reflect that if I could only find a man wiser than myself, then I might go to the God with a refutation in my hand and I should say to him, here's a man who's wiser than I am, but you said I was the wisest. Accordingly, I went to one who had a reputation of wisdom and observed him. His name I need not mention. He was a politician whom I selected for examination. And the result was as follows. Now, let me just interrupt myself here for a second. I think it's kind of it's kind of worth noting that Socrates isn't trying to throw anybody under the bus. He's not going to call this person out by name or anything like that. He's just he's just telling the story. He's, I think it's respectful considering what's going on, which we'll come back to that in just a second. So back to the guy uh, that he's talking to. When I began to talk with him, I could not help thinking that he was not um, that he was not really wise, although he was thought wise by many and still wiser by himself. And thereupon I tried to explain to him that he thought himself wise, but was not really wise. And the consequence was that he hated me. And this is a common thing. People don't like to be told that they're not wise. I mean, you can restate that to say, people don't like to be told that they're idiots, especially when they're idiots. The result was that he hated me and his enmity was shared by several who were present and heard me. So I left him saying to myself as I went away, well, although I do not suppose that either of us knows anything really beautiful or good, I'm better off than he is, for he knows nothing and thinks he knows. I neither know nor think that I know. In this latter particular, then, I seem to have slightly the advantage of him. Then I went to another who had still higher pretensions to wisdom, and my conclusion was exactly the same, whereupon I made another enemy of him and many others besides him. And so look, this is going to be a theme of all Socrates' questions. He goes up to these people who claim to have wisdom. He shows them that they're wrong, and the result is that they hate him. They just don't like him. They don't like being told that they're wrong. Socrates is a kind of a different breed. He loves it. He's just like, yes, I'm a big, dumb idiot. 
And I want you to let me know when I'm wrong, because only when we admit that we don't know, can we actually start to learn. And so if I'm better than any of these people, it's because I'm willing to admit that I don't know. These people have to unlearn all the, the, the wrong or incorrect things that they think they know just to get to the level of being ignorant or just to get to the level of being an idiot. But when you admit you're wrong, then you can start to grow. You no longer have to unlearn the bad stuff to get to the good stuff. And so if I'm better at all, it's only because I'm willing to admit I don't really know anything at all. So one more short paragraph in that section, then I'm going to set the trial up so you guys can have like a, a an image or a vivid detail about it. So then I went to one man after another, being not unconscious of the enmity which I provoked. And I lamented and feared this, but necessity was laid upon me. The word of God, I thought, ought to be considered first. And I said to myself, go I must to all who appear to know and find out the meaning of the oracle. And I swear to you, Athenians, by the dog I swear, for I must tell the truth. The result of my mission was just this. I found that the men most in repute were all but the most foolish and that the others less esteemed were really wiser and better. And so look, he's like, I understand that people are being offended. I understand that people don't want me to question them, but I, I had a choice to make. Who am I going to listen to? What God has asked me to do, which is ask questions, or what man has asked me to do, which is not ask questions. And he's just like, I'm sorry if it hurts your feeling, but if it's between what God wants and what man wants, I, I think I'm going to go with God every, every single time. And so he's like, look, in all my years of questioning, one thing that I've discovered is this. It's these people who just run at the mouth, talk, 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 who act like they know everything. Those are the most foolish. But it's these other people who just sort of sit back, drink it in, don't act like they know anything. That's where true wisdom lies. And so, look, kind of skipping ahead before we come back, if there's, if there's one thing true in what God said to Socrates that no one is wiser— it's because Socrates admits that he doesn't know everything, right? People can be as wise as Socrates when they admit that they don't know, but to, to, to do more takes that wisdom away because now you're asserting things that probably aren't, aren't correct. And so it's admitting our ignorance where true wisdom lies, which is something we can take out of, out of the apology. Okay, so that was his kind of intro. I want to back up a little bit and talk about what happens before the intro, so there's three particular guys who are bringing these charges against Socrates. The main person is a guy by the name of Miletus, who was a poet. And you can clearly kind of just see Socrates questioning him and him getting upset. And now he wants the whole thing to just stop. No more Socrates. Socrates is really famous, by the way, at this particular time. So we got Miletus, who's a poet. We have Anetus, who's a craftsman. And Lycon, who is a rhetorician and, and Lycon... And Anitas just follow whatever Miletus says. So uh, Socrates and Miletus are really the ones going at it. The other two are just sort of, you know, yes men to, to Miletus. So anyway, they bring the charges and there's two sets of charges. And I'm going to call them the old charges and the new charges. So the old charges are of doing natural philosophy. And essentially natural philosophy is just trying to figure out what everything's made of. So back in the day, they had these ideas of elements like air, earth, fire, and water. So that's a natural philosopher, somebody who's trying to figure out what, what, what everything is made of. So the old charges, natural philosophy and sophistry. Now, sophistry is essentially somebody who teaches others how to argue. They were kind of the precursors to modern day attorneys. Um, so they couldn't defend you, but they would teach you how to defend yourself and they would charge a lot of money. Only the very wealthy could afford the sophists. And so that's what he was accused of natural philosophy and, and sophistry. And then there's these new charges and the new charges are a little bit more serious. And those charges are of corrupting the youth and not honoring the gods of the city 
slash atheism. So Miletus goes back and forth on this one a little bit. So at, at first, we don't really understand what the new charges are. We have the old charges, natural philosophy, and sophistry. So Socrates walks into the courthouse. Socrates, despite his huge reputation, he comes off as a little bit shy. Socrates talks a lot, but he's used to only talking in front of his friends and just a handful of people. Uh, this is a big courthouse. There's going to be 501 jury members, and you have like another 500 people who are politicians, and then like another thousand people in the assembly. Like literally thousands of people in this courthouse have come to be like, holy crap, what's going on with Socrates is going to be nuts. It's just entertainment, live entertainment with another great uh, people of that particular time. So Socrates walks into the courtroom um, and he feels a little bit nervous and he goes up to the judges and he's like, I've never been inside of a courtroom before. I don't really know what to do. I don't know who to talk to. I don't know who to address. Um, if there's any advice you can give me, I, I would appreciate it. And so the judges are like, look, Socrates, don't worry about it. There's going to be some questions. You answer those questions to the best of your ability. And that, that's all we're really asking asking of you. And Socrates is like, okay, great. He's like, it, 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 would it be okay if I addressed the court as if I was talking to some of my friends? And they're like, yeah, sure, that's fine. He says, well, that's wonderful because I actually see some of my friends. I see my friend Plato sitting right over there. And he, he references Plato, who actually wrote the dialogue that we're kind of going through right now. So anyway, he's like, cool, I'll just do that. And then Socrates just turns into Socrates and tries to respond to the questions. And so again, we got natural philosophy and, um, and, and sophistry. One of the issues of, of not having a guest on the show is that it's tough to pause for water breaks. So sorry for the silence, just getting some water. And now I'm revved up and ready to go again. So um, natural philosophy and sophistry. The charge of natural philosophy is really weird. We don't really have any reason or evidence to suggest that Socrates was a natural philosopher. He didn't really engage in that type of philosophy. Remember, he was interested in the meanings of terms, and that's pretty much it. So he starts thinking about this. Why would anybody ever accuse me of doing natural philosophy? That's just not what I do. I'm very confused. Uh, and he starts to think about this a little bit. And eventually he starts to think to the story written by Aristophanes, a playwright, you can actually read this work, it's it's pretty entertaining, called The Clouds. So The Clouds is a comedy, and it's, it's about this guy who's a natural philosopher, and he falls in love with the clouds. He thinks everything is made of clouds, right? It's not air, earth, fire, water, it's clouds, and he becomes obsessed with the clouds. It's kind of slapstick, so his head is in the clouds. Like He's just walking around with his head up in the clouds, just obsessed with them all the time, and there's like a trail of discussion, uh, destruction, Mr. Bean style behind him, like ladders knocked over, and you can imagine baby buggies <laughs> and sorry about that, about that knocked over and things like this so anyway it, it, it's silly so this guy becomes uh, so obsessed with the clouds and like you should like skip ahead 10 seconds if you don't want the ending he becomes so uh, obsessed with the clouds that he kind of moves into something like a hot air balloon and opens a school called the thinkery up in the clouds so he's got all this destruction and he's done a lot of damage and harmed a lot of people but not intentionally okay that's the end of the story and so that's the end end of the, the the summary of the clouds the main character this person who was obsessed with the clouds turns out to be named socrates and so now we got the real socrates talking to the real miletus about a fake socrates from a comedy and so the real socrates is kind of like miletus you do understand that you can't put a real person on trial for the sins of an imagined person you know the difference between fact and fiction right Miletus and Miletus seems to like slump in his chair and he's just like oh crap 
I may have put a person on trial for the sins of an imaginary person. So he he wasn't a natural philosopher. It's just a silly charge. Didn't even make any sense. And then we move on to the charge of sophistry. So one thing about a sophist is that one, you teach. Two, you charge money. And Socrates never made any money. I mean, his wife would be happy to let everybody know Socrates doesn't do anything except ask questions. And so the two conditions to be a sophist, money and teaching, are both things that Socrates never partook in. If anything, Socrates was the student. Socrates was the one asking questions, and he never got paid by anybody for asking questions. He just wasn't motivated or moved by money. And so he certainly wasn't a natural philosopher, and he certainly wasn't a sophist. And his response, his defense to that was pretty much on point. There's no evidence to suggest that any of those things were happening. And so that's when Miletus sort of speaks up and it's just like, uh, that's not what I meant, Socrates. Uh, I meant that you corrupt the youth. I meant that you don't honor the gods of the city or that you're an atheist. And so with that being said, um, Socrates gets pissed. He's like, look, that's not what you said. You can't just change the charges in the middle of the trial. Now imagine today that somebody was just getting their ass handed to them in a trial. They were getting destroyed. And then, and then I don't know, the prosecution's just like, oh, we're going to change the charges. That case would be thrown out immediately. And it should have been thrown out too back then. But for some reason, on this particular day, the judges were like, yeah, we'll allow you to change the charges. And so Socrates kind of gets what's going on now. This isn't actually a trial to find anything out about truth. This is a witch hunt, and you're coming after me. And so Socrates, it seems at, at least... Gets gets the idea and then says, all right, if I'm going down Miletus, I'm taking you with me. Now, Socrates was a genius, an absolute genius at asking questions. But another gift that Socrates had is that he could read people to the point that he knew what made people tick better than they would know themselves. So he could look at, at any of us and be like, yeah, I know what makes you tick. And when you know what makes somebody tick, you can pretty much control the narrative moving forward. And so I thought it would be really fun, at least really fun for me, hopefully really fun for you, to read Socrates' cross-examination of Miletus. He's like, okay, fine. If I have to answer these new questions, I'm going to expose you as a fraud so that nobody really believes that we should take your questions seriously. And I think he does a great job of exposing this, um, of exposing this in his cross-examination. So... It's it's pretty entertaining. Entertaining. Let me read it to you now. Um, it starts off as this. Socrates is talking. He goes about Miletus. He says that I am a doer of evil and corrupt the youth. But I say, O men of Athens, that Miletus is a doer of evil and that he pretends to be in earnest when he is only in jest and is so eager to bring men to trial from a pretended zeal and interest about matters in which he really never had the smallest interest. And the truth of this, I will endeavor to prove to you. So I'm going to essentially saying, I'm going to try to prove to you that this guy's in it for himself. We shouldn't believe him. He's kind of a liar. And so if he makes up these charges, there's really nothing to them. So he says, come hither, Miletus, and let me ask a question of you. You think a great deal about the improvement of the youth. Yes, I do. Well, tell the judges then, who is their improver? For you must know, as you have taken the great pains to discover their corrupter, and you are citing and accusing me before them. Speak then, and tell the judges who their improver is. So Socrates asks Miletus this direct question, who improves the youth? And Miletus just cowers, he just hides. Imagine a four-year-old who puts a blanket over their head and pretends like you can't see them anymore because they can't see you. That's what Miletus is doing. He's like covering his face, you can't see me. Uh, but Socrates is like, no, I'm not gonna let you just not talk. And so he points it out. He's like, observe Miletus, that you are silent and have nothing to say. 
But is not this rather disgraceful and very considerable proof of what I was saying, that you have no interest in the matter? Speak up, friend. Tell us who their improver is. And Miletus responds very generally, the laws. To which Socrates says, but that, my good sir, is not my meaning. I want to know who the person is. Who in the first place knows the laws? The judges, Socrates, who are present in this court. What do you mean to say, Miletus, that they are able to instruct and improve the youth? Certainly they are. What, all of them or some only and not others? All of them. So every judge can improve the youth. And Socrates says, by the goddess Hera, that is good news. There are plenty of improvers then. And what do you say of the audience? Do they improve them? Yes, they do. And the senators? Yes, the senators improve them. But perhaps the members of the assembly corrupt them. Or do they improve them? They improve them. Then every Athenian improves and elevates them, all with the exception of myself, and I alone am their corrupter? Is that what you affirm? That is what I stoutly affirm. I'm very unfortunate if you are right, but suppose I ask a question. How about horses? So Socrates has Miletus exactly where he, where he wants him, and he gets into this thing that we refer to as the horse analogy. So let me break down the horse analogy in my own words so you, got, you guys get it, and then we'll talk about how that just exposes Miletus as a fraud. So imagine that you had a sick horse. In climbing, let's imagine that you had a broken pair of climbing shoes. Uh, if you had a sick horse or a broken pair of climbing shoes, who would you take those things to? Just anybody out there or somebody who knows about that craft? If you have a sick horse, you couldn't just take your sick horse to anybody and expect them to make that, that horse better. If you had a broken pair of climbing shoes, you couldn't take those shoes to just anybody and expect that they would make them better. There are people who can make horses better, just like there's people who can make uh, shoes better, and there's people who can make kids better. But not everybody can make a horse better or a pair of shoes better or a youth better. It's a ridiculous thing to even assert that. Suggesting that would mean that we could take a kid Literally anybody in ancient Athens and that kid would be great, which is obviously total B, B, BS. Me, for example, I don't really know anything about horses. I like them. I've actually seen horses in real life before. I hope that doesn't come off as a brag. I'm just saying I've, I've seen a I've seen a horse before. But if you brought me a sick horse, I wouldn't know what to do with that sick horse. I'd be like, ah. Put a blanket on it and maybe give it a carrot or an apple and hope for the best. That's what you're getting out of me because I don't know about horses. But if you bring your sick horse to a vet, they're going to make that, that horse better. So this is the horse analogy. Miletus just said everybody in Athens can make a youth better. And he's just like, why would we trust Miletus? We're not even willing to take our horses to just anybody. You think we'd take our young people to just anybody? Nonsense. And this is like a total kiss-ass approach. So Miletus is in there and just like, who do I want on my side? And so it's just like, you make them better. And you make them better. And you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and literally every single person except for Socrates. Socrates is the only one that I don't want on my side. So screw you, Socrates. You're the only like dark mark on the entire city of Athens. Obviously, that's a lie and that's nonsense. And I think Socrates does a pretty good job of bringing Miletus's character um, into question. That being said, he still has to respond to these new charges of corrupting the youth and not honoring the gods of the city slash atheism. So he actually uses a little bit of logic um, to, to respond. Uh, it, kind of uses this disjunctive style of reasoning um, when he responds to this charge of corrupting the youth. And he's like, look, if you corrupt someone, essentially that that's bringing them a type of harm. You're harming somebody. And we understand that you can only harm somebody one of two ways. You can only harm somebody intentionally 
or unintentionally. Now, if you harm somebody intentionally, you can always expect harm in return. And so anybody who's listening, who has a sibling, imagine you go, go up to your sibling and you just punch them in the arm. If you punch your sibling in the arm, you're getting punched back. But it doesn't stop at our siblings. If you go up to somebody in the bar and slap them in the face, you're getting beat up. That's just the way the world works. So if you harm somebody intentionally, you're going to get harm in return. He's like, I'm 70 years old, 70. Not one time in my entire life has anybody ever tried to harm me, not once. And so we know that if you harm somebody intentionally, you're going to get harm in return. I've never gotten harm in return, meaning I've never harmed somebody intentionally. Now, of course, that leaves open the possibility that I've harmed somebody unintentionally. Maybe I hurt a youth without ever knowing it. And so on that, he says, well, if you harm somebody unintentionally, you might not get harm in return, but what you'll get is a warning. If I'm walking by you, for example, and I step on your foot, you would probably be like, oh, I'm not going to punch this guy, but I'm going to ask him, can you please move? Like you probably didn't realize this, but you're stepping on my foot and I don't like it. And then I would move. And so it's like that. You harm somebody on accident, you're probably going to get a warning. Again, Socrates says, I'm 70 years old. Not one time in my entire life have I ever gotten a warning. No parent has ever come up to me and be like, Socrates, you didn't know this, but you're kind of putting some weird thoughts into our kid's head. Not one time has one of these young people grown up and come back to me and it was like, Socrates, like those conversations we used to have, they really harmed me. Not once has that happened. And so you harm somebody unintentionally, you're going to get a warning. I've never gotten a warning, meaning I've never harmed somebody unintentionally. Further, Miletus doesn't have any witnesses at all, old or young, to support what he's saying right now. And further, we've already exposed Miletus as a liar. So there is that. And so I think, again, that's a pretty good response to the charge of um, corrupting the youth. But now we get to the next charge, the charge of not honoring the gods of the city slash atheism. And if you'll bear with me, I, I want to read this section too, because he really just manhandles Miletus in a really entertaining way. I, it's, it's great. Let me just read it. Um, okay, so here's Socrates again. He says, it will be very clear to you, Athenians, as I was saying, that Miletus has no care at all, great or small, about the matter. But still, I should like to know, Miletus, in what am I affirmed to corrupt the young? I suppose you mean, as I infer from your indictment, that I teach them not to acknowledge the gods which the state acknowledges, but some other new divinities or spiritual agencies in their stead. These are the lessons by which I corrupt the youth, as you say. So he's like, look, I corrupt the youth, you're saying, because I, I teach them not to honor the gods of the state. Now listen to Miletus's response. It's very important. Miletus's response to that could have been, I'm going to shrug my shoulders or hide my face again. He doesn't do that at all. Miletus says this about are you saying I, I teach them to, to, to follow other gods? He says, yes. That I say emphatically. Again, that's not just a nod or a shrug. Yes, that I say emphatically. You're teaching them to honor other gods. All right. Miletus, I'm sorry. Socrates responds to Miletus by saying, then by the gods, Miletus, of whom we are speaking, tell me and the court in somewhat plainer terms what you mean. For I do not yet as understand whether you affirm that I teach other men to acknowledge some gods, and therefore that I do believe in gods, and I'm not an entire atheist. This you do not lay to my charge, but only you say that they are not the same gods which the city recognizes. The charge is that they are different gods. Or do you mean that I'm an atheist simply and a teacher of atheism? 
So two questions to Miletus. The first one, are you saying I'm honoring different gods? And he says, yes, that I say emphatically. And then Socrates is like, are you sure? Do you mean to say I'm an atheist? <laughs> and then Miletus changes his mind. Miletus then says, I mean the latter. I mean that you're a complete atheist. So Miletus sort of gets rid of the charge of corrupting different, or I'm sorry, um, honoring different gods. And after saying, yes, I say emphatically, he changes it to, no, I just mean you're an atheist. To, to which Socrates has the easiest response in the world. It's what we open this podcast on. What's the one reason why Socrates got started doing philosophy in the way that he was doing? He was doing it because he was not only honoring a God, he was honoring Apollo, trying to find someone wiser than him. Why would he try to honor Apollo and find somebody wiser than him if he didn't believe in any gods? His entire life is based around that. It's the most ridiculous charge of all, and everybody knew it. <clears throat> Clearly, Socrates said, look, I, I can't stop doing philosophy. That would be to dishonor God, and so I'm not going to. Under no circumstances would he do that. Again, it's not only that he wasn't honoring different gods. It's also that he wasn't an atheist. We wouldn't be here if Socrates was an atheist. And so anyway, that's it. Obviously, I'm not an, an, an atheist. Of course, uh, I'm asking these, these questions because of God. And so are we done here? Can we go get lunch? Did I defend myself enough? Do you have some more charges that you want to just pull out of thin air or what, Miletus? But no, that was the end of the charges. And now the jury has to go back and deliberate. So they go back and deliberate. Again, uh, there's 501 members of, of the jury. In order to win a court case, you just need half plus one, so 251. So they deliberate, and they come back, and they find Socrates guilty on all counts. 280 people said he was guilty. 221 said he was not guilty. So it was kind of close, but not close enough. So he's found guilty, I guess, of everything, of natural philosophy, sophistry, which isn't really even illegal. He is convicted of honoring different gods and being an atheist, corrupting the youth. It's insane that he was found guilty. Um, so generally when you're found guilty of something in ancient Athens, there's no absolute punishment that comes down with it. You get an opportunity to recommend your own punishment. So now Socrates has to get back up in front of the jury and recommend a punishment for something that he didn't do. He certainly didn't do anything wrong. And of course, I think a lot of people could argue that what he did was actually good and helpful. Socrates would certainly make that, that argument. So I don't know if you've ever gotten in trouble for something that you didn't do and then had to recommend a punishment for that thing. It's a terrible, terrible feeling. And Socrates is now just pissed. He's like, this is ridiculous. I wasn't wrong about the witch hunt and, and, and they caught their witch. <clears throat> so he thinks about this and he gets back up in front of the jury. And he's like, this, for the sins that I've committed against the people of Athens, I deserve lifetime in the Pritaneum which sounds kind of bad until you understand what a Pritaneum is. The Pritaneum is where they would send like the great politicians and heroes um, as a retirement home. So if you imagine ancient Greece where there's people sitting in a nice chair getting fanned off and fed <laughs> grapes from the vine, that's the Pritaneum. Essentially, Socrates is just like, look, I didn't do anything wrong. If anything, I deserve a reward because what I did is showed the people of Athens the greatest good, that is asking ask, asking questions. And so his friends pull him back and they're like, Socrates, these people just found you guilty of nothing and you're out here making jokes. And he's like, I'm not making any jokes. I didn't do anything wrong. If anything, I deserve a reward. And they're like, yeah, we know, but that's not what we're talking about here. So you need to chill. 
And so I think in all honesty, most of the people that found Socrates guilty expected him to say, fine, you know what? I'll just stop doing philosophy or I'll accept banishment or some, something like that. But of course, as you know, Socrates couldn't do that because to do that would be for him to, to disobey God. He couldn't stop doing philosophy. And so he's like, no, I'm, I'm not going to stop. And so his friends are like, look, Socrates, just give him some money. Money cures everything. Just give him some money and let's get out of here. And Socrates is like, I don't have any money. And even if I did, I wouldn't pay him a dime because I didn't do anything wrong. And so his friends are like, look, it's not all about you. It's about us too. Because if you have to stop doing philosophy, we also have to stop doing philosophy. So maybe just stop thinking about yourself for a second. We don't want to quit. And so just give them some money and that's it. Okay, we got another problem. I don't have any money. And he's like, they're like, who cares? Like we have tons of money. I'll never be able to pay you back. We don't care. We don't want your money. Again, it's not about you. It's about us. And so they come to this agreement and, and they say that, uh, we'll offer 30 mina of silver, which is a pretty substantial amount of money. For back then, it's it's a it's a very substantial amount of money. And so like, Socrates, are you cool? And he's like, yeah, I'm good. Go offer them the money. Let's get out of here. So Socrates gets back in front of the jury. He looks pretty cool, calm. And he's like, look, I don't have any money. And even if I did, I wouldn't give you a dime because I didn't do anything wrong. And then he just says, my friends offer 30 mina of silver. Take it or leave it. I don't really care. And so that's it. Now the jury has to go back and deliberate again. Are they going to take the money? And if they don't take the money, they got to come back with their own punishment, their own recommended punishment. And that's exactly what they do. They don't take the money. They come back and they're like, yo, you had your chance, Socrates, and now we're going to kill you. And then they sentenced him to death. It's at this point that you would think, oh, okay. Now he's going to be really upset. Socrates wasn't upset at all after he was sentenced sentenced to death his friends were upset but he was calm and he's just like i think they made a mistake i don't understand why people think death is a punishment and he says if anything death is one of two things it's either a dreamless night that even the king of persia would envy that's pretty good uh you guys know how it is sometimes you you, you hit that pillow and you just crash and you sleep all the way through the night. You don't stir. You don't get up to go to the bathroom. You don't do anything. You just wake up the next day and you're like, wow, that was a great sleep. So you either get that for all eternity or I get to go to a place where they're not going to judge me for asking questions. And so if anything, they're giving me a reward. This is certainly not a punishment. Also, I'm 70. So what are you guys even doing? This is stupid. And so he's 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 okay with it. Um, That being said, though, remember, he does have two two small children. And so at the very end of this dialogue, the apology, uh, Socrates asks a, a favor of his friend. So let me read that to you um, to you now, and uh, then we'll have gone through the apology, at least the way that I interpret the apology. So anyway, he's, he's good. He's like, whatever, they're going to kill me. Um, but I, I have a favor to ask. When my sons are grown up, I would ask you, oh, my friends, to punish them. And I would have you trouble them as I have troubled you. And if they seem to care about uh, about riches or anything more than about virtue, or if they pretend to be something when they are really nothing, then reprove them as I have reproved you for not caring about that which they ought to care and thinking they are something when they are really nothing. And if you do this, both I and my sons will have received justice at your hands. The hour of departure has arrived and we go our ways. I to die, uh, you to live, which is better, God only knows. And so... I think Socrates is just saying, look, you know, speaking ironically, 
punish them as I have punished you. Or right? if they start to care about the name brand on their toga more than about what's in their heart, then you need to chop them down in the same way that I've chopped you down. And if you can do this, then I will have received justice again at your hands, not at these idiots in, in the jury, certainly not uh, th th through Miletus. And so that was it. They went their ways. Socrates did have about a month between the time that he was sentenced to death um, and actually executed, but they did end up killing him. He had to drink poison and um, and that was it, kind of. It was sort of it, but luckily for us, we had Plato who, who, who recorded a lot of the conversations he had with Socrates and then went on to do, do even more. And so this is why we're talking about him you know, 2,500 years later, he was, he was a great philosopher. So anyway, that's all I really wanted to talk about today. Just kind of share a little bit about uh, one of my favorite philosophers with you guys. As always, I, I thank you for, for, for sitting in and listening and joining us. Like I said, if you want to chat or talk, just hit me up. Uh, I'll be around. Um, thanks for listening.